Our text today is from Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 32. Give you a moment just to find that passage of Scripture. Mark 15, verse 24 through 32. There we read these words. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Perhaps one of the greatest trials to bear when standing for the truth of Jesus Christ is the burden of standing all alone and hearing the lies, the mockery, and the insults that seem at times to literally overwhelm our spirits. To receive the physical blows of adversaries is so much more bearable when we know other Christians suffer with us in the same cause of Christ. But to stand alone, or so it seems, and to become the laughing stock of family and professing Christians because you will not compromise the truth of Jesus Christ is such a weighty burden to bear. Dear ones, many Christians have deserted the paths of righteousness and truth due to the loneliness and the isolation that comes from defending that true doctrine and worship of Jesus Christ. Our corrupt human nature even despises having to stand all by ourselves for the cause of Christ. The Christian who knows he enjoys the fellowship of other Christians can ordinarily rise up from physical persecution that he receives much more quickly than the Christian who feels all alone and isolated and receives the verbal assaults of adversaries. The temptation is great to fall into depression and discouragement and despondency over the way in which those close to us have abandoned their post and left you alone to guard the precious doctrines given 
to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems time and time again that the heaviest burdens David speaks of carrying were the taunts and the unjust criticism of the majority who sought by their cruel words to bring his soul to the point of despair. Just a a few indications of that. In Psalm 3, verse 2, David cries out, Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. Many cry this against me. Again, in chapter 4, verse 6, David prays, There be many that say, Who will show us any good? In chapter 27, verse 12, David prays, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. And then finally, many, many others could be cited, but this last example, Psalm 35, verses 11 and 12. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. Dear ones, if anyone knew what it was to suffer alone, all by himself, the mockery, lies, and unjust criticism of the majority, it was our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung upon that cursed cross. But our Savior endured the loneliness of all such indignities upon the cross so that you and I would never have to suffer this the similar types of indignities all by ourselves, all alone. And so when it seems that we are alone, we are not alone. For He is with us so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13.6 Well, let us consider the following three indignities that Christ suffered upon the cross in the first three hours of his crucifixion. First of all, the indignity of nakedness in Mark 15, verses 24 and 25. Second, the indignity of being numbered with criminals in Mark 15, verses 26 through 28. And thirdly, the indignity of further mockery and insults in Mark 15, verses 29 through 32. First of all, then, the indignity of nakedness. Look with me again as we read Mark 15, verses 24 and 25. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. As our text begins today, the Lord Jesus has now been led to Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. 
Once having arrived, our blessed Savior is cruelly nailed to the cross and lifted from the earth for all to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was now the third hour, or 9 a.m., on that Friday. What we shall consider today were the indignities which Christ suffered for those first three hours upon the cross. Now, every aspect of crucifixion was intended to dehumanize a man, perhaps more than any other type of punishment could. Those being crucified ordinarily suffered the indignity of being stripped of all their clothing. Not only was it a curse to hang upon a cross, but it was also a public shame and humiliation as well. To be publicly exposed before men and women and children in such a manner was to endure one of the most extreme humiliations among Israelites. And I dare say, amongst most people, that is to be publicly exposed, naked before all to see. We read even earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, about how Hanan had uh, shaved half of the, the beards of his servants, of David's servants who were sent to comfort Hanan at the loss of his father. And he had, in addition to that, exposed them to public nakedness as well. And it says they were greatly ashamed. Now, the shame of their nakedness could be dealt with rather quickly by getting clothing. But the shame and humiliation of having shaved their beards in that particular culture could not be dealt with quickly. They had to remain in Jericho for a time until their beard grew out. Now, the scripture does not explicitly use the word naked in regard to Christ's condition here, but the text would certainly seem to imply either a partial or a complete nakedness. For we find in Mark 15:24, and when you compare that with John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, that the four Roman soldiers specifically responsible for Christ's crucifixion took all of his garments from him and began to part them one to another and divide them amongst themselves. Now, the Lord Jesus would likely at this time have had at least the following pieces of clothing, a pair of sandals, an inner cloak, an outer cloak, which would keep him warmer at night, and a belt or a girdle. This would have left him, if he even had that left, with a loincloth hanging upon a cross. The soldiers then cast lots in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 18, to determine who would get the various pieces of Christ's clothing. What a scene this was indeed. The sinless Son of God suffered in extreme misery and agony for sinners like those very men who played games under the shadow of the cross. They had so little interest in the suffering of Christ. They blocked out his suffering 
by making his execution into some kind of a game. The, these executioners had become so callous to the sufferings of, of the sinless Son of God that they entertained themselves while Christ groaned, no doubt in much pain, hanging upon the cross. Yet the Lord Jesus, dear ones, listen closely, the Lord Jesus became naked. He became naked that such sinners like these soldiers beneath the cross who gambled for his garments might be clothed with his garments. He became as a sinner bearing the guilt and condemnation of his people that they might be clothed with his glorious righteousness. Dear ones, we were those soldiers who lived for our own pleasure in the shadow of the cross, who do not take seriously what Christ suffered there upon that cross. We gamble, we party, we play so often and become consumed with our pleasures in the shadow of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have cared not for His suffering or His pain, but He loved us with an everlasting love and gave us eyes to see our own nakedness and shame. And that Christ became naked that we might be clothed with His righteousness. Dear ones, do you understand that your sin has made you naked and infinitely shameful in the sight of a holy God? Do you acknowledge that you are without any righteousness or goodness with which to clothe yourselves? You may certainly believe that you are clothed by your own works of righteousness and obedience and that your own goodness is a beautiful garment in the sight of God. Many people believe this. But if you believe that, you have deceived yourselves, just as the emperor in that fable was deceived when he was told that he was clothed in the most beautiful royal garments ever made, when all the time he was walking about in the shame of his own nakedness. Listen to the invitation of the Lord Jesus today as he addresses all those who hear his voice, even the members of the church, as he did to the church of Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Lord Jesus says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have, and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now listen to the counsel of the Lord Jesus, the invitation of the Lord. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that thou, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, 
that thou mayest see. Dear ones, now that we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, confessed our nakedness and received the robe of his glorious righteousness, now that we have been clothed with that perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us not live for our own pleasure treating the clothing of Christ, treating the righteousness of Christ as if it were a game. For we act like those soldiers, dear ones, when we can lie and deceive and steal and cheat and boast and lust or commit any other sin without shame, playing our games in the shadow of Christ's suffering for sin. How seriously, dear ones, do you take your sin today? How seriously do you take your sin? Come to him today with your nakedness and shame, and he will clothe you. He asks for no further qualifications for you to come than that you recognize you're naked, that you recognize you're poor, that you recognize you've got a problem with your sight. And since that's the condition of all men, he invites all men to come and to receive of the glorious salvation which he alone can give to those who trust him by faith alone. The second indignity that was suffered by the Lord Jesus Christ was the indignity of being numbered with criminals, as we read in Mark 15, verses 26 through 28. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. A further indignity, dear ones, which Christ suffered as he hung upon that cursed cross was to be accounted a criminal with the alleged crime for which he was crucified hanging above his cross. The alleged crime that he committed was stated in these words, the king of the Jews. In Mark 15, 26. That was his crime. The fact that he was the king of the Jews. Now we are told in John's gospel, in John chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, that the chief priest didn't like the way that that was worded. They wanted it written in such a way that it said Jesus called himself or claimed to be the king of Israel. Not that he was the king of Israel. But Pilate refused to change what was written. And so it stood. That he died, his accusation was not that he claimed to be the king of the the Jews, the king of Israel, but that he was the king of Israel, which is a fact which is the truth. Christ, dear ones, was condemned and Christ suffered as the Messiah. This is a powerful testimony, divine testimony, for the reason Christ suffered. He suffered not for any wrongdoing on his part, but he suffered because he was the king of Israel. 
and they rejected and refused their king. Even in Christ's death, dear ones, man could not remove the glory of Christ and the testimony of Christ as to his suffering for sinners. And we're told in John 19.20 that this sign of Christ's supposed crime was written in three languages. Hebrew, that is probably not Hebrew, but Aramaic which was the common language spoken in Palestine at that time. Latin, which was the legal language spoken in the Roman Empire. And Greek, which was the social language used throughout the Roman world. Now, Christ had prophesied, you'll recall, in John 12:32, a week before his crucifixion, the very day that he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, that if he was lifted up from the world, if he was lifted up upon that cross, he said, I will draw all men unto me. The Lord did not mean that he would draw every single man, woman, and child that ever lived unto himself so as to save them. Christ was saying that his suffering and ultimate death upon the cross was not only intended for sinners among Israel, but for sinners among all nations. All of those in every nation who had come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, he would save. He would pay for the sins of all elect sinners in every nation. And dear ones, that truth is made clear in the fact when Christ was crucified, he was declared to be king, Israel's king and was offered to all nations, whether they spoke Aramaic, Latin, or Greek. He was offered to all nations. Not only as Israel's king, but he would become the king, the Messiah, the anointed one to all who come to him by faith. Israel as is a nation, we know, refused to come to Christ as their Messiah at his first coming. But there is coming a day, because God has promised it, when Israel as a nation will be granted the grace and the mercy to come with tears and with mourning to the Christ they crucified and will give an affirmation of their faith by saying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, according to Matthew 23:39. And Israel's conversion to Christ will be mightily used of the Lord then to bring all nations to Christ, according to Isaiah 2 and Micah chapter 4 and Romans chapter 11. Dear ones, isn't it encouraging as we behold the scripture to see how God rules and overrules in the affairs of men in order to glorify himself and in order to bless his people? If the Lord can turn the most shameful death of Christ upon the cross into a proclamation of salvation to all men from all nations, he is certainly able to take your trials and your suffering. And make them a blessing to all others around you. 
You must know, dear ones, you must know that your suffering and your trials and your pains and your heartaches are not in vain. There is a divine purpose in it all. These things do not accidentally occur in our lives. Call upon the Lord. Not only to mercifully remove your afflictions, but I would suggest even more importantly to use your afflictions to bless others in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, or in English, or in Spanish, or in French, or German, or in all the nations of this world, in order that all men might be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us that Christ was numbered with transgressors, actually with criminals that deserved to die. He was placed in the center, that place of prominence, as the chief of sinners between two robbers and murderers. As we have noted in an earlier sermon, it is most likely that Barabbas was intended by Pilate to occupy that center place, that cross in the middle, between his two accomplices in murder and robbery. But Christ voluntarily took the place of the chief of sinners and was accounted to be among the most vile criminals in order that he might rescue undeserving sinners from the wrath and the curse of God. Again, we see that this was in fulfillment of prophecy that he was numbered among the transgressors in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Beloved, Christ was ordained to be the Savior of sinners. This was no accident. The fact that this indignity of being numbered with criminals was no accident but was ordained by God from all eternity, did not mean that Christ did not suffer and did not experience great humiliation and indignity and shame and being hung up there among criminals and sinners. For if we who are corrupt sinners would find it absolutely shameful and repugnant to be stripped of all of our clothing, dehumanized before men and women and children, and classified with the worst of criminals for no crime which you had committed. Can we even imagine the degree of humiliation which Christ suffered, who was forever pure and holy, and had never thought that which was sinful, let alone speak or do that which was sinful. To go from his heavenly throne of glory to be stripped, naked, crucified, and accounted the chief of sinners was an inexpressible shame and indignity for the sinless Son of God. But he suffered that shame and indignity that you, that you, the real criminal, that me, the real criminal, the real transgressor, might be forgiven now and for all eternity. Every sin which brings true shame and eternal condemnation to us. 
He who suffered this indignity of being numbered among criminals and transgressors, dear ones, will never abandon you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you nor abandon you. You are never, ever alone when you feel like you are suffering alone. If he has condescended in love to suffer such shame for you, dear Christian, can any shameful sin that you would now commit ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Dear child of God, his shame is the guarantee of your shamelessness before a holy God. The third and final indignity which Christ suffered was the indignity of further mockery. In Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 32, where we read these words. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. You'll recall that Christ had previously been mocked by the Roman soldiers in Mark 15.20. But now the king of kings is mocked and insulted by those who simply were passing by in Mark 15, verses 29 through 30. He was mocked further by the chief priests, the scribes, that is the Sanhedrin, in Mark 15, verses 31 and 32. And finally, he was even mocked and ridiculed and taunted by the two criminals of all people, the two criminals who were crucified on each side of him in Mark 15.32. Let us look at the words spoken by these who ridiculed and criticized the Lord. Those passing by looked upon Christ apparently as an imposter whom they thought had claimed to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and in three days to miraculously raise it up again to rebuild it in three days which in fact he did not claim at all to do with the temple in Jerusalem but rather he claimed to do with the temple of his own body that was what he was speaking about according to John 2.19 here were people who no doubt had either witnessed or heard of the many miracles of Christ and they conveniently misinterpret his words and selectively forget all of his actual miracles in order to make fun of him in that situation, the time of his humiliation, the greatest time of his humiliation. Then there were the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, who gloating in their supposed victory over Christ, also mocked the Lord Jesus by recounting how Christ had miraculously 
rescued others from all types of infirmities, how he had saved them, and that would be the general meaning of the word saved there. You saved others, meaning you rescued, you healed miraculously others. But now, you cannot heal. You cannot save yourself. You cannot set yourself free. What is telling about the words of these religious leaders is that, is that they do not say that Christ claimed to save or heal others from their afflictions, but rather that he did save or heal others from their afflictions. They acknowledge that he did those things. They're not denying the fact that he miraculously healed. These men knew and could not deny the miracles which Christ had performed. They simply conveniently attributed the miracles to the power of Satan, not to the power of God. Every man, dear ones, who refuses to come to Christ will either misinterpret Christ's claims or ignore Christ's claims or attribute Christ's claims to some other cause. They will have some reason or excuse not to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the reality of Christ and his claims cannot forever, dear ones, go unheeded. For every man will on that final day of judgment be forced to acknowledge Christ and his claims to be true. How foolish for men to deny and reject here and now what they must confess that which they must be, will be forced to confess to be true on that final day. These mockers, these mockers challenge Christ to come down from the cross. And if He is the Christ, if He is the King of Israel, if He is the Son of God, He should do so. He should miraculously do so. Set himself free. And they say, we will believe in him. We will believe in him if he does so. The Jewish leaders, dear ones, had heard and seen Christ perform many miracles during his ministry. And that was not sufficient for them to believe in him. The Jewish leaders had most recently witnessed the power of Christ to knock over 600 Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And to heal the ear of the servant which Peter had cut off. And that was not sufficient for them to believe in him. They would subsequently know and realize that Christ had been raised from the dead when the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb came back and reported to them the miraculous events associated in that resurrection morning. And they would tell the Roman soldiers to tell a lie and they bribed them and gave them money, though they knew the truth. They did not believe in him. Dear ones, they have no intention. They have no intention in believing in Christ, even if he should come down from the cross. For their hearts are blinded by self-deception and unbelief. As sinners, dear ones, we think... We are so intellectually honest in evaluating facts. But this one, this is one of the greatest delusions 
under which sinners suffer, dear ones. For apart from the grace of God, we cannot see the facts concerning Christ clearly and come to Him in faith. Those atheists who stand and taunt God to appear before them or to move some object in front of them and then they say they will believe are very much like these who taunted Christ to come down from the cross. Dear ones, if the testimony of the inspired scriptures is not a sufficient testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, no miracle will change their mind. You remember in Luke chapter 16, verses 29 through 31, this parable of the rich man Lazarus. And how at the very end of this parable, this rich man is, is saying to Abraham, let me go back and tell my, my family. I have brothers that are living. Let me go back and tell them about this horrible, terrible place of anguish so that they will not come here. Listen to these words with that brief bit of context. Uh, this rich man says, For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Actually, he was not speaking of himself going back, but he was saying, send Lazarus back from the dead. This poor man, this beggar that was at the gate of the rich man, send him back to testify to, to the uh, to his five brethren. Verse 29, Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. You see what he's saying? If there is a miracle, they will repent. Verse 31, and he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they per be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. See, the problem is not so much that people do not have sufficient knowledge. The problem is more that their eyes have been blinded. They do not have faith. They are calloused in their hearts. They do not want to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. They want to run their own lives. They want to enjoy the things of this life more than they enjoy Christ. Everyone's, if you are waiting for a miracle to happen in order for you to receive the truth of Jesus Christ, you'll never believe the problem is not that you do not know the truth of Christ to be true. The problem is that you don't want to receive it. You do not want to embrace Christ. May God give you eyes, each and every one. May God grant us all eyes to see and to behold Christ and what he offers to us in salvation. Furthermore, very briefly, had Christ
come down from that cross. If Jesus Christ would have taken up the challenge and come down from that cross, it would have meant our destruction, not our salvation. The fact that he remained upon that cross and suffered the humiliation of that mockery brings salvation to all who will come to him in faith. Does Christ know what it is to stand all alone and be stripped of all dignity? Does Christ know what it is to be shamed? Does Christ know what it is to be accounted a criminal, mocked and taunted by others, with no one to come to his defense? More than we will ever, ever know. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12 in closing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You are not alone. And you will never be alone, dear ones, because of what Christ suffered upon that cross. He suffered all things for his people that he might deliver them from the sting of loneliness and isolation and standing for the truth. From the sting of mockery and shame and standing for the cause of Christ. He suffered in your place upon that cross, dear Christian, in order that you might never have to suffer that shame alone. Yes, we will suffer humiliation. We will suffer shame and mockery for Christ and His truth. But we will never, ever suffer alone. Praise God. To our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.